Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Welcome everyone and welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as today we're going to be speaking with Alina Siegfried all about performance poetry and impact storytelling. As well as that, we find out all about her life and journey so far. It's one of those interviews where we jump from here to there and end up touching on many different topics, so I know you're going to enjoy it. If you do, you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog, as well as some of the content over on theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this interview with Alina. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Alina Siegfried, who's an impact storyteller, to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, Lena, what we do on this podcast is we talk about stories, which is why I'm really interested in the title that you've got, the impact storytelling part of it. And I'd love to unpack what that means to you and what what it is that makes a good story and how do we tell stories. Mm. Um, but before we talk about that, I always like to go back in people's journeys and find out a bit about where they're from. Sure. So if we could just start there with you. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um where do we start? <laughs> well, tell us a bit about your childhood, like when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was it like there? At four or five, I, were, I was born in Fakatani, mm-hmm. so I was living there, um, beautiful sunshine, Bay of Plenty. Um, I was a very adventurous child, spent a lot of time in the outdoors, loved climb, climbing trees. Um, I ran away from home out of my cot when I was about three and went about two blocks down the road to feed the ducks at the lake <laughs> by myself. Um, but yeah, um, lots of outdoors time. Um, my um, my parents, particularly my dad, took us tramping a lot. So we got to spend quite a lot of time out in the bush and, mm. and we're just over the hill from Ohopi Beach. And yeah, So nature was a big part of your childhood. It was. Yeah. It was, yeah. And it's grounded in me a lifelong love of, of the outdoor world. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're a poet. Was mm. words a big part of your childhood as well? I pro- I wouldn't say so, no. no. Um, and even in high school, I, I kind of hated poetry. Like, I found it really boring. Uh, most of the poems we studied I found were completely irrelevant to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't really until my kind of... I, I always wrote a bit of poetry um, in, in my sort of... Um, later teenage years, it was almost a bit of a laugh. I would I would write kind of funny poems about my friends and mm-hmm. and their adventures or misadventures often. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until my late twenties that I really fell in love with poetry again and discovered that it could actually be a really fun and entertaining thing to do to perform your poetry aloud to people. Because right. prior to that, it was just on the on the page. Yeah. Oh, well, let's go there in a bit. Um, I, I'd love to understand your process of writing poetry, for example. But coming back to your childhood, um, what sort of things did you enjoy, you know, in those teenage years, say? Um, I think largely the the usual stuff, just hanging out with friends, um, mm-hmm. going to the movies, going, you know, hanging out the mall or whatever it was it was pretty typical kind of teenage years um i mean i did a i did a little bit of um sports and so on um well well maybe not so much team sports i did i did things like um a lot of tramping i did the duke of edinburgh awards so Mm -hmm. lots of the longer overnight tramps um did quite a bit of skiing Mm um as a teenager um we had um a membership at one of the huts up at whakapapa 
So I was on the mountain actually when it erupted in 1995, which oh, right. was a pretty crazy experience. Yeah, what was that like? <laughs> um, I thought I thought we were all going to die. <laughs> it was insane. It was uh, we were visiting um, the we'd had our club races that day, and one of the women had hurt her knee. So a lot of us kids had gone down to the kind of little clinic, mm-hmm. at the base village, and. Um, to see her and all these doctors and nurses started rushing into this one room. And it was like, we were like, this is like Shortland Street. Like this is, you know, like some medical emergency is happening. Mm-hmm. But they were all crowding around the windows um, watching the mountain erupt. Wow. And then we just kind of ran outside. There's like ash cloud coming up everywhere. And it was just, it was manic. It was crazy. Yeah. How did that shape you in the coming weeks, I guess, or like thinking we're going to die at a young age like that? Um, I guess it was a bit of a reality check. I, I mean, the I think probably within about five to ten minutes of it happening, it was quite clear that we were we were not in immediate danger. You mm-hmm. know, the rocks weren't weren't coming down to the village. But it certainly got me really interested in volcanoes. I went on to study geology at Canterbury right. here in Christchurch um, because I wanted to be a volcanologist. Huh. But after Tracing t- back to that? Yeah, wow. well, largely. And I really enjoyed geography class in high school. That was my best class and my favorite. Mm-hmm. had a really good teacher. I just really enjoyed the topics. Um, so I ended up studying um, geography and geology. I was going to do a double major in geology and computer science, which would have probably been a really a good path looking back. <laughs> but um, I lasted about three lectures in computer science before I was really honest with myself and said, I haven't understood a single word that any of these lecturers have even said. <laughs> so I think I better quit this course. <laughs> yeah, this may not be the right... <laughs> yeah, this is not <laughs> my <right> vocation. <laughs> so, but the, but the, um, the volcanoes, I, I'm just curious to understand then, that like the being there for the eruption and things, is, is that literally... What caused you to get into that, or was it just one of the factors? I think it was a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. Because you saw the power. Just saw of the, it was a power of nature. The like, erupting. and then you said you came to Canterbury to study. Is that right? I did. Or, yeah. yeah, I did four years down here. Right. And how quickly do you specialize into a particular area? Like oh, you mentioned, yeah. vol- volcanology. Is that the right term, or it, it would be? Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually, I, I did. Two years of geology and geography in tandem, and okay. in the third year I picked the geography path, because while I really loved volcanoes and the, the like geological processes, mm. I came to realise that I'm much more interested in the processes than the end products. So I, I hated rocks. All oh, right, <laughs> which is kind of a problem, for, a problem a geologist, for a geologist, right? right. <laughs> and so I'd like I just was so bored in these three-hour rock labs, and I was like, right. can I really sit through three years of this in order to be able to specialize in year four, right? In volcanoes, I'm like, whereas geography is processes all the way through. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, in geography, there's lots of different streams, isn't there? Because mm. there's human geography, yeah. and, you know, like not just physical geography it's mm-hmm. quite varied did you specialize in a particular part i specialized in physical geography and, and probably mostly in glaciology okay um a little bit in coastal studies as well and geomorphology i really enjoyed mm. geomorphology actually right. which is um the the sort of the movement of earth like the movement of soil yep. and, and so on um, this is a side note but my wife's father so my father-in-law 
had his PhD in geomorphology oh. of New Zealand coastlines. Oh, he, he did cool. it back in the 1960s. Yeah. And then he taught at University of Auckland for a while. Yeah. So I actually do know a little bit about that. Oh, cool. Um, because that was his Yep. That's that was his thing. Yeah, he, he was an expert in that. It's fascinating, isn't it? It is. How, how so? We're, when we're driving around, he's always looking at the land and saying, "Look at that! Mm-hmm. This is what happened here. Look at the erosion over here." Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We we um, did a lot of work up in kind of um, highland areas, the Central Otago. Okay. There's some insane plateau kind of thing processes and land patterns up there. You've got like these hexagon shaped shapes of rocks that are natural from freezing processes and hmm. it looks like a human would have made them it's right. just like hexagons of, of larger rocks on uh-huh. a smaller rock bed uh-huh. you would have sworn that a human had right. come and arranged all these or, rocks but yeah. it's from freezing and thawing processes huh. it's it's yeah it's fascinating stuff yeah. um but yeah I, I think looking back i if i had done my degree like 30 at 35 instead of like you know age 20 mm-hmm. I think I would have been much more interested in human geography. Mm. I think I've come to really appreciate sort of the the place of um, sociology and ethnography and like the, you know, the way that that humans work Mm. um, and the way we design cities and spaces. I agree. And particularly we're we're having this conversation in Christchurch. So thinking about the human geography or what's the impact of an event like (laughs) earthquakes on the human geography side of things in terms of not just trauma, but like movements of people absolutely that are disrupted they used to live here where mm-hmm. do they live now well they've moved over here what's the implications on that location mm-hmm. and yeah. this whole neighborhood has changed and that mm. neighborhood's not there anymore and yeah and the, i mean just looking around the central city it's just it, it's so so vastly different than what it was mm. the first couple of times i came back to christchurch after the quakes i I was so disoriented. I had no idea where I was in the mm. central city mm. until I'd see a familiar landmark that was still there. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, the, that's where, that's I am, where yeah. the library was, or, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's quite yeah. eerie. But fortunately, there's a new city being burst. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to get used to that and one. It's, and it's looking amazing. Like, um, yeah. it's, it's so cool to see the, the stuff that's popping up around the city mm. from, you know, all the art and the vacant spaces and all the stuff that Gapfilla were doing. And yeah. And greening the rubble, um, and just yeah, it's really coming back to life again. Yeah, it's that's right. To see. Yeah, so you get to the end of your degree at Canterbury, mm-hmm. and did you know what you wanted to do next? Or? Um, well, I um, I did an honours year in geography, and in between my third and fourth year, I also did a graduate certificate of Antarctic studies. Okay which um, was a four-month summer course, mm-hmm. um, and it was incredible. We got to spend 17 days down on the ice. Right. But it did mean that I had been intensively studying from beginning of third year, like all the way to end of fourth year, like a lot of coursework. So yeah. um, I decided that I wanted to not think too hard for six months, and I took a job as a hut warden in Tongariro National Park uh-huh. and spent six months wandering around in the hills. Right. It was lovely. Yeah. What did you enjoy the most? I think just the the solitude and the or the knowledge that you really have you don't have to achieve anything today apart from make sure the huts are clean, the toilets are clean, mm. you're there to greet the visitors in the evening and take tickets and tell them about the park. But really for a chunk of about five or six hours in the middle of the day, it's all yours. So I did a lot of reading. Um, I got intimately familiar with like every valley, (laughs) 
you know, you'd go off the track and like, what's down this little valley or, mm-hmm. you know. And some of the landscape up there is just out of this world. Mm. It's um, the Otorere Valley in particular is just like, it's like the moon. Mm. These crazy rock formations everywhere. And um, so I spent a lot of time just wandering around. And sometimes in the rain, which was really fun. Because right. they gave you really good rain gear. And so if you've got good rain gear on, it's actually quite fun to wander around in the rain. And you get to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise, yeah. like little waterfalls. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. I did the Milford track years ago now, but it was pouring with rain. But I think we saw a side of Milford track that other people wouldn't if it was just sunny because it was there that's was right. waterfalls all over and it was just spectacular. Yeah. 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 You got to have the rain to have the waterfalls, right? Yeah, that's it. So around that time, is that when you were getting back into or realizing that you were a poet or how did that work? No, that was that was kind of earlier. That was, this was earlier in my 20s. So mm-hmm. um I realized that in, when I was living in Canada um, around 2009 that I started going to these um, these performance poetry events um, and that they would have poetry slams, which is um, the, the competitive form of spoken word poetry. So mm-hmm. they'd have these competitions where you get three minutes of the microphone. It's got to be original material. There's no music, no costumes, um, you know, no, no other gimmicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much time are you given to prepare? Well, you can, you can do what you want. Well, you can do it. Yeah, you can you can prepare your whole life if you want. Yeah. Um, so you just bring a piece that you've hopefully memorized. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does, but it's just so much more of an impressive performance when you've memorized your piece. Yeah. Um, rather than reading off your phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I guess back then people weren't reading off phones that much. So they were like reading off printed bits of paper or books. But. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually a competitive environment. It is, yeah. yeah. And the audience, I mean, it's, it's quite a silly competitive environment. The audience right. um, judges are, are selected on the night, so the MC just picks five random people out of the audience and gives them scorecards. Okay. And, um, and you know, explains the, the process. And so it, any given night, it could, be, it could be anyone judging you. And that's mm. kind of what I really loved about it in the first place is it's almost like the democratization of what makes good poetry. Right. It's such, such a subjective thing, right? Um, so it's like but saying... there's five random people. Yeah, like, <laughs> okay, you've made the effort to come out tonight and listen to some people speak their poems. Um, you deserve to be a judge mm. and you can decide tonight what is good poetry. Mm. So I really loved that aspect of it. That was, you know, it was quite a sort of a... Uh, anarchistic kind of activist thing to do is like you know take take poetry away from the the critics and be like here you go you can decide tonight right it's not an elite sort of yeah um, in a journal over here mm-hmm. it's actually you the crowd are deciding that's right yeah. yeah so um it's that so was that the moment when you started thinking i could get up there i could say something or yeah, yeah. it was and um uh it, it also was the same period in my life when i was i was working um, for an environmental organization as a, a water issues advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing a lot of work. In, you know, I was living in the prairies in Canada and Saskatchewan. So it's, it's a pretty dry prairie province often in the summer. And so I was doing a lot of work around water conservation and teaching people about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I hadn't, you know, it, it seemed a lot, pretty boring, a lot of this work that I was doing, PowerPoint presentations and so on. But so at the same time I found this this um, this poetry slam, I um, I learned about this guy out on the east coast who had done a, a personal water conservation challenge, um, and I decided to do that myself. And so for a month I 
used only 25 liters of water per day to meet all of my daily needs. So mm. that's cooking, bathing, showering, um, flushing, laundry, everything. Mm. And like 25 liters is, is not much. It's, mm. um, you know, like <laughs> it's not much at all. It goes pretty quick. It goes very quickly. Um, yeah. And so I, I was, you know, I was, I was making these little videos to put on YouTube and so on. And, and I thought, why don't I write a poem about this? Mm. And so I wrote a poem about it. And, and, you know, weaved in some thoughts, um, joining kind of my own personal experiences um, within the wider narrative of global water politics and so on, and and um, performed it um, in a slam. And I, I came in fourth place out of 12, and I was like, that's pretty good, you know, mm. first go. First one, yeah. Yeah, um, and I just I just loved it. Um, but the, the really interesting thing was people came up to me, like there probably was maybe 100, 150 people in the bar that night, People were coming up to me for months afterwards, like proudly telling me their water conservation stories. Ah. Like they, they'd be, you know, like, oh, I, I turn off the tap brushing my teeth now because of your poem. Huh. I even had a woman approach me on the street, like in a completely different context, like sharp business, suit, you know, like, and, and she was like, yeah, telling me all of these ways that she was saving water. Hmm. And I was like, huh, there's something here. There's something that I've been able to achieve in this three minutes that I've had a hard time getting cut through with like these, you know, dry PowerPoint presentations, excuse, right. excuse the pun, yeah. um, that I had been doing in schools or um, or community groups. And yeah. and it was just something about, oh, you know, you can, that's the beauty. I found the beauty of poetry for me is you can synthesize really complex ideas and just bring them down into mm. kind of a few minutes and and strike people on a on a heart to heart level or an mm. emotional level, mm. I've said this before on the podcast that in in a way a poem can crystallize a five hundred page book. If a poem can resonate with people, then it's going to have such greater impact because it is memorable. You know, I'm just thinking like you know, classic two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the road less traveled by. Like, it just captures something that. You, you couldn't say that in 500, word, 500 pages, but you can in two lines. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is incredible. And, and funny you should say um, synthesize a whole book because that was a challenge that I set myself um, last year. I read a book called Big World, Small Planet by Johan Rockström, who's a leading um, climate scientist um, and is sort of famed for helping come up with the planetary boundaries theory, mm-hmm. which is this, this idea that there are tipping points in every area of our planetary system from the oceans to the atmosphere, the forests, the biosphere, the soils. Mm. Um, and he has a book um, that lays it all out. And um, it has the, you know, a book like that has the potential to be incredibly depressing. But this one was quite um, hopeful. Mm. And he um, he involved a bunch of photographs by a photographer. His name is Matthias Klum. Um, beautiful photographs. Um but anyway, the, the book talks about um, the sort of dawn of humanity and certain times through humanity that, um, you know, have been very pivotal moments from, you know, the dawn of agriculture, the industrial age to the age of the automobile. Mm. And um, and so I took on the challenge of he was going to be at um, the New Frontiers Conference, which we run, um, which I had been helping run through the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was there as the newest Hillary Laureate for the year. And I thought, oh, I'm going to summarize his book. 
mm. in a poem, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is, I think it's about, it's not a long book, it's probably 200 pages, but I got it down to about like four or four and a half minutes, and I just summarized the book. And, and yeah. did you give it to him? And <laughs> well, I, I performed it on stage ah. right before he got up to talk. Yeah. And, you know, one of my sort of proudest claims to fame is, is him getting up and saying, wow. That's that's just the best summary of the book I've ever heard in my life. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, nailed it. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Right, like, we could share that poem if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Should we do that now? Yeah, that'd be good. Okay. Okay, so this is Big World, Small Planet, the remix. 75,000 years ago on a high plateau in what will one day become Ethiopia, a woman scans the barren ground for seeds and berries. Tightens the furs binding baby to her breast, oblivious that she holds in her hands the future of the human race. On the brink of extinction, humanity's population has dwindled to a mere handful, perhaps just a few thousand of us remain on the face of the earth. Just a blip in human history, merely a moment in time, it is the story we never hear about how we almost disappeared. Some 10,000 years ago, upon the alluvial plains of Mesopotamia, an aging farmer gazes out upon a golden field of barley. The ancient ones speak of a time when food was foraged from the wild, but he has planted with intent. Master of his own destiny, he is blissfully unaware that this very moment in time marks the inception of humanity's ascent. The following millennia will see us at our best and worst, from conquests and crusades, witch trials and slaves, to Renaissance arts, mathematics, medicine and the discoveries of space. In 1804, on a filthy wooden floor of a London slum, a young mother unwittingly gives birth to the billionth living member of the human race. Forty years later, her son mops his sodden brow, shoveling coal into the insatiable fiery mouth of a shining new steam engine. Soot-black-eyed and bone-broke weary, he is building the future of industry. He is progressing the human race. A 1950s housewife rides shotgun in a 57 Chevrolet Balier. Sits proudly beside her husband, who represents the one-sixth of American working-age adults to be employed by the automobile industry at the time. Oblivious to unintended consequences, they are paving freeways across the future. In 2008, from the elevated porch of a longhouse in Borneo, an elder surveys the thick, dark smoke, blanketing a land where forest fires are foreign. The rainforest slash and burn makes way for monocultural palm oil. The fires burn so vast that the collective smoke would account for 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions that year. It is 2019, and we are no longer unaware. No longer averting our eyes from the caged canary that has been lying unmoving for quite some time now. The earth is submitting her invoices for the streets we have paved with gold, for each incremental blip in human progress, and payment needs to be underwritten by a monumental mind shift. It is time for us to step up and respect the boundaries of just how far we can push this planet, become stewards of our collective futures, realize just how much our livelihoods depend on it. We live in a global community, a big world on a small planet, 
where our every flutter of a butterfly wing can either serve to strengthen the hurricane or fuel the winds of change. And like it or not, these days we make our homes in each other's backyards. The Nigerian farmer whose dreams wash away with the soils and every season's floods, the rain no longer soaking the earth, that man is your neighbour. The machete-wielding clear-cutter lives in the Amazon basin next door. Look into the eyes of the Congolese youth risking life and limb in civil conflict to mine the minerals for our mobile phones, and you will find a brother. This is not about sacrifice, but about unleashing our full potential. It's not about saying no, but about embracing a resounding yes. This is about building the house of humanity with hard hats and steel-toed boots. Travelling the mountain roads of our destiny with guardrails to mark out the cliffs. This is about humanity moving out of mama's home and learning how to do our own laundry. Emerging from adolescence into adulthood and embracing responsibility. 100 billion moments of human progress have brought us to this place. 100 billion blips. In late 2017 in Wellington, New Zealand, a woman enters a fertility clinic with bated breath. And nine months later, scanning the future for some seeds of hope and some berries of change, tightening the sling-binding baby to my breast, I hold one tiny contribution to the future of the human race. In every blink of my daughter's eyes, a blip in history. In every blip, a reminder of a global citizen in the making, already taking notes. Great. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really cool to think, um, you know, what, what we were saying before, a poem can capture so many thoughts and concepts and things. And I love how you wove in at the end there, the personal side of it as well. Yeah. And I actually had to change the ending of that poem because the original ending that I performed at New Frontiers on that day was mm-hmm. um, I was five months pregnant. Ah. And so I um, I referred to the baby in my belly, right. which um, is obviously no longer the case. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was really it was a really kind of an interesting way. Uh, quite a few people in the room um, that I knew didn't realize I was pregnant, and so it was a, an interesting way to kind of announce that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tying it in, um, but yeah, it, it was it's through. Um, Having opportunities like that to perform in the not not so not so business as usual spaces, mm-hmm. so rather taking poetry this kind of form that I had been doing in a bar, mm-hmm. um, into a place like a like a conference, um, and you know having uh, grown old men coming up to me in tears afterwards. It's right. just like there's mm-hmm. something so powerful here mm-hmm. if you can really get people to feel something that deeply. Yeah. And it was a real kind of an interesting moment for me thinking, you know, this isn't just for entertainment. This is, mm-hmm. you know, this is how we can tell stories to mm-hmm. have a decent chance at actually saving ourselves in, <laughs> in this world. Yeah. Um, I just uploaded an eight-hour episode for the Future of Learning conference, um, which about halfway through, they had somebody come up and perform some poetry, and it broke up the day really nicely. Mm. Um, so it just echoes that point. You know, if you can have poetry and other ways of thinking interspersed in what would traditionally be relatively dry mm-hmm. PowerPoint and speaker, 
you know, it actually does make a difference, doesn't it? It, it does. And it, it can, I mean, it can really shake things up. Um, I'm speaking at a, um, a zero carbon and uh, a sort of a sustainability conference down in Wanaka and Queenstown early next month. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they've decided to put me on right after lunch to kind of be like, you know, let's wake people up here and yeah. um, uh, get, get the brain going again after a bunch of food yeah. in the tummy. Well, I think the powerful thing about poetry as well is that it uses the imagery that's very evocative. And mm-hmm. I think even if you look, if you think about storytelling, which are kind of moving into this what is impact storytelling, but a good story will leave you with an image that resonates that, you know, even going back to sort of like, this is a long time ago, but sort of the idea of a parable, Mm -hmm. you know, you can summarize an entire concept in the idea of, um, you know, it's a seed, which is how I came up with the name for this podcast, you know, like that, that seeds look like they're dead. You plant them and they grow. It was so much work to come up with the name seeds but actually it resonates with everybody because they hear the word seeds and it means something immediately. Mm-hmm. And I think with poetry, it's a similar thing, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And I mean, if it, 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 sort of on one level, the story is, is just a concept. Mm. You know, um, Stories are how we make sense of the world. They, mm. They're how we connect as humans. They're how we teach our children about, you know, what, how the world works. Mm. Um, and, you know, going back a long, long time, that's... Uh, provided any information to each other is through story mm. we're a, an oratory species mm. um, that's that's how we learned yeah um, and really the, i mean the written form is relatively new mm. in the in the whole history of humanity i did a little thing about podcasting and that's how i opened the piece was actually you know go back a couple hundred years your ancestors and mine probably wouldn't have been able to read or write to be honest you know like that was kind of the elite of the elite Mm. a very few people could do it Mm -hmm. Um, but they could tell stories and they could listen to stories and that was how you transmitted and that's why I think podcasting and audio is kind of seeing a big resurgence because it is going back to the roots of we like stories we like to hear people's voices Mm -hmm. talk about their lives yeah yeah. And that was a big thing for me in, in terms of enjoying poetry so much more when I heard people perform, mm. is that I, I don't actually particularly like reading poetry out of a book. Mm-hmm. It's quite funny because when they hear I'm a poet, people will suggest, you know, oh, you should read this book or read this book. I'm like, uh, I don't do poetry books. Mm. You know, I, I will watch a bunch of videos mm. or listen to podcasts of people doing their poetry, but I need to be able to hear their voice right. because it's their words and it's, it's just such an intimate thing when you can hear it delivered in their own voice right yeah so it's so for you part of the poetry is the performance it is yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. and it's it's you know it's about like it's about taking the audience on a journey Mm. it's like where where do you where's the arc of the journey going where are the highs and lows where's the twists Mm -hmm. um and you know and the beginning and end is is obviously really important because that's the that's the what what people will st- will remember. Mm. Well, this is verging into the impact storytelling. But in your mind, what is it that makes when you're writing a poem, for example, you know, you just talked about the beginning and the ending being important. Mm. Are there things that you're looking to build into poems to make them resonate with people? Or? Yeah, I mean, whenever you can speak from personal experience, it's it's going to be all the more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, my earlier um, sort of forays into spoken word were a lot more personal there were sort of my own personal experiences mm-hmm. over the years I've started weaving a lot more um, 
you know, global politics issues or environmental issues or, um, yeah, wider, um, bigger than myself issues. Mm. But I always try to find a way to be like, well, where do I fit into this? And why is this relevant or interesting to me? How does this affect my life? Because that makes it tangible for somebody. Mm. If If they can find themselves in your story or your poem, then they can connect with it all, mm. all the more deeper. Mm. Um, so the poem you performed for us at the beginning, it's the person, however many... 75,000 75, years, years ago. Yeah, and we were almost all dead, and we don't yeah. even know that, right? And, and it's, <laughs> but, but it's then zooming in to the end of the poem, which is, it's you mm-hmm. thinking about your child, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. So I, I do try to um, make that personal connection where I can. Um, another thing I always try to do is... Uh, most of my poems will have at least one or two humorous lines. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's it's more kind of ironic humor than anything, um, but I find that's um, that's hugely powerful to insert, particularly when you're you've got a heavy topic that you're talking about. Mm. Is um, I, I I quite enjoy self-deprecating humor, so I'll often have something that sort of yeah makes fun of myself <laughs> mm, yeah so you're in canada you're learning about performance poetry and things and then you ended up back in new zealand and being involved with ehf Can i did you just tell us a little bit about that journey and sure back? yeah so i i came back to um i came back to new zealand in 2010 mm-hmm. and um i'll tell you a funny story about the what, what actually um what spurred me to come back uh, and it was um, it was probably mid two thousand ten or early two thousand ten, and I um, my favourite Kiwi band is Shapeshifter, mm-hmm. and they had released a new video um, for the song Twin Galaxies, and the um, and the video the music video for the song is sort of CGI animation style, but it starts in the middle of the North Island. It starts in the Central Plateau in Tongariro National Park. Right, which you knew very well. <laughs> which I knew very well, and that's where my journey to Canada began, right? Uh-huh. I, I, I met somebody there and followed them to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, and the, it follows this this kind of uh, rock monster who I later learned is, is Romok, or the god of earthquakes, and he's mourning the, the death of his father, and his and his mother, um, Ranganui and Papatuanuku, and uh, he goes on this rampage through the North Island. And even though it's CGI, there's very recognisable geographic points. A bunch of places where I grew up. So there's um, there's Mount Tarawera. And I, I grew up in Rotorua, so it's very close by. There's you know this hill that I recognised near Tokoroa that we used to drive past all the time. And of course the the mountain, like there's the Otorere Valley, which I mentioned earlier, mm. like that features in the video. Um, and Mount Rapehu, where I grew up skiing, um, there's the chairlifts in the background, and so it was. It was all my kind of my reference points of my of my younger self. Hmm. Um, and this Romoku goes rampaging through the North Island, eventually ends up in Wellington, and like destroys a few buildings and um, settles in the middle of the harbour. And I had always wanted to go and live in Wellington. It was it was kind of. Um, yeah, it was it was the city that had always called me, and so I took. I, I was at this time where I was thinking about it might become time to come home to New Zealand. I saw this video. I was probably one of the first people to see it. It was only out for a couple of days, and I thought, "This is my sign." <laughs> you know, is is this my this, favorite band has done it? This, my favorite band has gone on this journey from from Tongariro National Park 
to going on a very tumultuous journey because my own journey during during mm-hmm. that time and being over in Canada was incredibly tumultuous mm-hmm. um, as well. And and then I ended up, um, yeah, it, it, this monster ended up in, in uh, or God ended up in Wellington. So that was like, okay, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to Wellington and my life will be fine. <laughs> and it kind of all worked out that way. That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's amazing, isn't mm-hmm. it? To think what, I always love those stories because what is it that sparks people to leave this place to go to that place and, mm-hmm. and, and a music video? Why yeah. Not? In this that's case, God. there was a very clear sign yeah. from Shapeshifter. Kia ora, shapeshifter. Yeah. <laughs> so you end up in Wellington. Yes. And did yeah. you, yeah, did, did, was it a, did you find a job before you came or you um, just showed no, up? Or? No, I looked for a while. I lived with my parents in Rotorua for a few months before I found the job down in Wellington mm-hmm. and ended up getting a job for parliamentary services, um, supporting Green Party MPs with environmental issues campaigns. Right. So I did that for three years, um, which was um, an incredible learning experience. Um, really loved parts of it. Also came to recognise the um, the way our parliamentary system works mm-hmm. and the inherent kind of uh, I'd call it sort of you know point scoring and criticising the opposition and how much focus there is on that really. Mm. I became quite disillusioned with mm. politics. I had still had huge respect for the people I was working with and the work that they were doing. Um, but it was, yeah, the, the system itself um, really, um, the system itself wore me down and I, um, I, th- I decided that I wanted to leave and work in the area of social enterprise, huh. um, which was something that felt, um, I guess, a little more constructive to me. We, um, I mean, we, we need policy. We mm-hmm. need the people um, who are in there in Parliament and, and doing that stuff. But for me, what felt um, was my next calling um, was something that was building the solutions um, rather than, yeah, sort of arguing back and forth about right. finer points. Yeah. So what, what did your path lead to next then? I, um, I took a job with Lumio, which is a, a software startup um, based out of Wellington. Mm-hmm building collaborative decision-making software. So I helped for six months um, to do the communication strategy around a global crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, we raised 125000 US dollars in non, non-equity crowdfunding, which I think at the time was, I think, the second biggest raise that had ever happened in New Zealand. Mm. So that was a really fun thing to be part of. Um, really. Something you could believe in as well. Yeah, yeah. and an awesome team of humans. Um really cool people that were kind of very serious about changing the way that we make decisions mm-hmm. together and in a more collaborative way. And coming from Parliament straight into that was like, okay, this is this is the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was just a six month contract. And so after that I had gotten chatting through the Inspiral Network actually mm-hmm. um, to a couple of the the co founders of of Kiwi Connect, which at that stage was a very new organization. Um, so I'd got chatting with Yosef and Brian, um, had met them a couple of times mm-hmm. and um, they were looking for a communications lead to kind of um, take this this new company forward. And at that time Kiwi Connect was um, it was it was founded with the the idea of being a a bridge to New Zealand for purpose driven entrepreneurial talent, people that wanted to make the world better. 
um, and recognizing that New Zealand has so many of the right ingredients to test and incubate mm-hmm. new ideas. Mm-hmm. We've got a small, you know, a small population, small market. You can test things and, and validate things quite quickly here in a way that you can't in bigger markets. Yeah. So. Um, so this is before. Edmund Hillary Fellowship yeah. name or anything. It's so this days. this was the company that eventually became Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Yeah. Um, but for the first two or three years of Kiwi Connect, um, yeah, we spoke with a lot of people in the social enterprise sector about you know exactly how would be the best way to to get um, people who care a lot about the world to come to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And we, um, as part of um, our sort of yearly calendar of events we were holding this New Frontiers Summit yeah. out in Whiteman's Valley and we had the head of Immigration New Zealand speak one year and um, he kind of put out a call and invitation at that point and said if anyone's got any ideas about how we can get you know sort of more young uh, entrepreneurial talent who are solving problems to come to New Zealand then let's talk and so Kiwi Connect got talking with Immigration New Zealand and um to sort of sum up the next year and a half, we ran a bunch of roundtable discussions around the country and um, a few overseas and came up with this concept of the Global Impact Visa together. Mm-hmm. There's a brand new category of visa for New Zealand and it's the, it's the world's first visa program to be focused on impact and what is the positive impact you're creating. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super exciting to be part of um, and we put in a tender to be the, the government's private sector partner to deliver that program mm-hmm. and when we when we won the tender that's when Edmund Hillary Fellowship was born mm-hmm. that was two and a half years ago yeah that's great yeah to round that off um, I interviewed Mark Prane a couple of years ago now Wonderful. Well, a year yeah. and a half ago so he gave from his perspective with the Hillary Institute of Leadership mm. and kind of I think meeting yeah. some of the people uh, Yusuf and Brian and others I think mm-hmm. and then kind of coming together with the name and the yeah, what it that, those conversations were going on at the same time in terms of like, um, right. you know, what how, what's the best um, format for this this organisation to take, mm. and got talking a lot with the Hillary Institute of mm. International Leadership, mm-hmm. who um, who select a global laureate every year, who's tr- usually sort of mid career and working uh, um, often in climate change, but um, mm. in some sort of a change space, and. Um, made sense to um, develop a, a new company, a fellowship um, that was nested under under that brand of the of the Hillary Institute. So that's how EHF was born. Yeah. Um, that's and, cool. So your role there, was it, uh, again, sort of the storytelling, helping people to yeah. explain what they're doing? Because I'd love to talk about impact storytelling and of course. what that means for you and, and what you're involved in now. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, how it came about in EHF is my role as content and communications covered a lot, you know, from social media and the newsletter and analytics, but also Mm -hmm. a lot of content creation. Mm -hmm. And we made a strategic decision quite early on that we would tell, focus and put a lot of time and resource into telling the stories of the fellows who were coming into the program. Right. And to focus on them as humans first and foremost, and then... um, almost secondarily to focus on, well, there's probably three priorities, like focus on the human first, second, the impact that they're creating, Mm -hmm. and third, almost as an afterthought, their venture. Mm. Because there's so much talk in sort of entrepreneurial, um, you know, fields about like, what is the venture? What's the idea you're working on? Mm -hmm. And and some of these ideas are incredible, but businesses come and go. Mm. You know, so many businesses fail. Yeah. 
Um, so we were really interested in telling the stories of the humans and what motivated them and what made them care about the problems that they were working on. Sure. So that um, the reality is that many successful startups have five, six, ten, twenty failed startups behind them, right? Like it, it's that's right. It, there's yeah. very, very rare that someone mm-hmm. immediately is a success with the first thing that they try, but yeah. they learn from. Exactly. They learn so much through that process of having failed. Mm -hmm. And if we can take some of those learnings and say, hey, this person had a real crazy like downtime in their life when Mm -hmm. everything went wrong, you know, Um, what did they learn out of that? And we've all had downtimes in our lives. So the audience can see that they can go, oh, this hugely successful entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. you know, went through a tricky divorce or lost Mm -hmm. a child or had a a you know an aha moment where they were speaking with their grandmother when they were younger when they suddenly saw something in a different light and we can yeah. all relate to those moments in our life exactly what we're talking about with poetry right mm-hmm. it put in some personal and yeah. inject the humanity into it and you know yeah. what is it that motivates people so that's, when i approach cool. storytelling for impact that's often what i'm looking for is where are the human stories within I an see. organization mm-hmm. Um, and it might not always be appropriate to tell those stories publicly. It, it often is mm-hmm. um, when, you know, even if you're sort of introducing your team and employees and going beyond the usual, you know, short, like, you know, one sentence yeah. bio on your website. They graduated in this year and yeah. this is what they studied. Yeah, it's like actually, <laughs> no, this person, you know, lost a parent at a young age and it formed their life. Or, yeah. Um, you have to be careful with that, obviously, because you want to make sure that you're telling stories people are comfortable with. Mm. So that was an integral part of it, too, is is writing up the stories of the fellows. Um, often, you know, being a little bit cheeky with including details that you're not sure if they're going to want there or not. Mm-hmm. But then running the draft by them and saying, hey, how do you feel about this? Mm-hmm. If you don't want to include that, let's take it out. Just let me know. Edit the document and mm-hmm. we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. Um but that, yeah, that was a really um, incredible opportunity to um, have a, a good grounding in that sort of human-centered storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, we've got over 200 Global Fellows now, mm-hmm. and I've probably introduced roughly half of them on our blog. Mm-hmm. So um, that was just a really amazing way to get to know the stories behind the people and, and the, the change that they're doing. Mm. So talk us through, um, I guess, what you're doing now. But then I'm really curious, like, if you've got people who come to you and they want their story to be told, what are the questions you're asking or how are you getting to the heart of who they are as mm. a person? Like, what are some tips that, that we can learn from as well? I mean, if I'm, if I'm sending somebody questions for... Uh, you know, interview questions um, that to write up their personal story. I'll ask things about, um, you know, tell me about a pivotal moment in your life mm-hmm. where your view changed on something, or um, what are you most passionate about, and what what was the seed of that passion? Mm-hmm. What what was the moment that you realised that you cared about that? Mm-hmm. And often, you know, almost all the time, there's a story behind that. People don't just decide one day, oh, you know, I'm going to get interested in. Um, human trafficking, or I'm going to get interested in water issues. Um, it, it's you know, it's reading a story perhaps on um, someone's personal account of being of being trafficked, or it's seeing the river that you grew up swimming in, no longer you know absolutely polluted, and no longer mm-hmm. be, being able to to be in that in that waterway. Mm-hmm. So everyone's always got a sort of a personal root root problem. So it's about sort of teasing out those um, those more 
um, intimate details of their lives and we'll find a lot of, often with some of the fellows they're not used to that they're very used to like presenting this is this is these are my accomplishments and this is what I've done and it's quite a refreshing process to be actually saying no we want to hear about you so, you know what what shaped your opinions mm-hmm. um, what was it um, mm-hmm. so I think asking some of those questions that are a bit more probing mm-hmm. and not everybody will answer them in the way that you want them to mm-hmm. um, but it's an invitation mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it similar with this podcast because obviously I'm storytelling, really. That's what's happening here yeah. is hearing people's stories. And it is uh, the reason I always start with the beginning of a person's life is that I find there usually is something that shaped them that, you know, if if we just if you just had said, and then I studied geography at Canterbury University, you know, knowing that you saw a volcano erupt in front of your eyes, <laughs> yeah. it kind of yeah. it resonates a lot more like, oh, I can mm-hmm. get it. I know why she did that You can that trace now. that story yeah, back. You yeah. make sense of the story. Yeah. And, and even throughout this interview, we've talked a lot about nature and, you know, being out in national parks and Canada and other things. And But then my first question, you know, you said when you were four or five, you would often be outside, you would go to the beach, you would go tramping, hiking, all that. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely, I agree with you, it's that asking those questions, isn't it? To mm. get a bit more of the why, why do you do this? Yeah, where we see this often done is people will talk to the founder of a business. Um, but I'm equally interested in what, what, called, what called those team members to jump on board. Mm. Um, so unpacking some of those, those, um, those human stories behind who's working on the problem um, and then, I mean, w- when an organization's been operating for a few years and they've started building up some areas of impact, mm. I'm really interested in knowing, um, you know, what, what are all the areas of impact? Mm. So not just what is your, what is your primary focus, um, whether it's, um, you know, providing kids with lunches or whether it's um, building a cryptocurrency or, or whatever it is, but what are all the other elements, the interconnected pieces? So... If, if you're making kids lunches, what about the volunteers that are that are doing? I'm thinking of the um, mm-hmm. of the example of Eat My Lunch, which is one of our fellows, Lisa King, yeah. started. And um, so, you know, how does how does that community cohesion work? And um, uh, how are they delivering the lunches? Like, what's the transport mechanisms and all the other areas of impact? So, mm-hmm. often when I go into an organisation looking to, to help them tell their stories of impact. Mm. I'm not. Lo- I'm not just looking at what are they. What's their core business? I'm looking at what are all the parts of your operation. Mm-hmm. How can we tell some of those stories mm-hmm. um, to you know weave in the sort of complexity of what you're doing? Mm. It's not the um, the broad brush of we're this type of business and here's our one sentence that describes mm-hmm. it, isn't it? Um, yeah. Which I think because I notice I listen to lots of other people's podcasts and sometimes the question will be, what do you do? You know, like, and it doesn't really get to the heart of the person if it's simply, well, I'm a, you know, like I'm a lawyer and I do cases and it's, but why did you become a lawyer? What is Mm -hmm. it that drove you to, to be, think that you can have an impact in this way? And why do you work in that particular area? You know, it's asking those questions, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the best answer I ever got to the the question when I asked um, what do you do to somebody that I had just met Mm -hmm. uh, she responded I smile a lot Mm -hmm. and I just thought that was the most beautiful thing in the world I was Mm -hmm. like yeah that's great you know Mm -hmm. you're not going to talk about what it is that you do for money 
mm-hmm. you're going to tell me what you enjoy doing, and that happens to be smiling for you. Yeah, <laughs> it was really great. <laughs> that's good. I was just taken aback, and I was like, "Wow, that's brilliant." Yeah. <laughs> so I've just I pulled up your um, little sign off in your email because i love it it's impact storyteller narrative strategist performance poet i think we've talked about impact storytelling and performance poetry the narrative strategist part what does that Mm. involve so that's a reasonably new term Mm -hmm. um and i i I sort of I, i read a report on the state of storytelling for impact um, earlier this year, mm-hmm. I think it was um, it's by an organisation based in New York called Beyond Storytelling. Mm-hmm. So they had synthesised the different types of um, of impact storytelling that mm-hmm. are out there, from you know things like um, political ca- campaign messaging mm-hmm. to um, the arts, film and media, um, to creative writing and and all these things in between. Um, and the final category of kind of different areas that people were working on was called narrative strategist. Hmm. And basically it's a catch-all for people that use lots of these different tools and mediums to talk about impact. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I went, that's me. That's mm. me right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done political campaigning. I've done environmental advocacy. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've done the human-centric storytelling. I've stood up and done poems. So I've got the arts side of things. Um, but I'm also really interested in the science behind things as well and mm-hmm. and putting things within um, uh, global frameworks like the Sustainable Development Goals. So I, I read this report and I'm like, I, I had an identity. It was like, that that's what I am. It's mm-hmm. a narrative strategist. But at a broad level, it's about looking at what what's not just the... In, individual stories that an organization has Mm -hmm. but what is the overarching narrative of that organization and how is that couched in the overarching narratives that inform our society um and the report even talked about um about a sort of a level above narrative which is meta narratives Mm. and that's kind of the stories that we all subconsciously buy into Mm -hmm. like the fact that we need money to buy things so money yeah. is just a social contract that's what we've decided is the story of of how we transact and that's only one you know it's it's one of those things that's taken for granted mm. and um you know at times it works quite well <laughs> at other times it doesn't work well because mm. it's only um it's only one piece of the equation mm. um, but th- that's an example of what what are these sort of meta narratives mm. and so as a narrative strategist um I think it's it's um, it's a way of bringing the the complexity of um, of the problems that any organisation or individual is trying to solve, mm-hmm. and um, I guess trying to make space um, to talk about the the interconnectedness of the ways that we're approaching this problem. Mm-hmm. So it's about yeah thinking about how how we can. Um, present that overarching narrative of how we tie in the the social or environmental or cultural or economic impacts of what an organization is doing mm-hmm. in a cohesive way. Mm. And it's a challenge, isn't it? Because it's kind of easy to fall back in the old paradigm of looking at money and numbers and saying, well, here's the budget and we met it or we didn't. You know, it's a, But the reality is when you're talking about impact, it can be hard to measure the social impact or the environmental impact or the cultural impact, for example. 
and that's the challenge isn't it but i think increasingly it's going to be more important more important and we're going to see more and more companies realizing they need to report on Mm -hmm. well not only did we ship this many widgets we also had this impact on people yeah yeah, and I mean there are. I mean it is it is much more difficult to to measure um, than than perhaps just purely financial because there's different ways of of cutting it. Mm. But um, with some of the impact reports that I've done this year, we have looked at things like um, uh, you know how many how many tons of landfill waste were diverted, mm. or how many people have been employed in the local community. I did um, an impact report for um, Extreme Zero Waste up in Raglan. Mm. Who have been diverting between 70 to 75 percent of their town's landfill uh, waste from landfill every year for 20 years, mm. and it's just it's just incredible um, that I mean you look at that and you think okay so that's a zero waste company, but actually they've employed about they've got about 40 people in the local community employed, mm-hmm. um, they've been repurposing. Um, bits of of things going to landfill for use in construction. Um, Mm -hmm. They ran a bunch of trolley derbies down a steep street and then then they were making rafts so the community's getting involved in in a kind of a fun arts activity and repurposing these old things and Mm. even to the point where they've they've developed really incredible forms of of self-governance in the face of opposition from the local council in the early years. So Mm. it's there's a whole, there's a whole kind of a, um, yeah, um, a governance and autonomy part to it too around community mm-hmm. building. So, mm-hmm. it's not just a zero waste company, right? Yeah. Do you think in the future we'll move towards some objective criteria that we'll be reporting on across that type of thing? I'm just thinking about sustainable development goals, for example, yeah. as something to hang your head on, like, you know, looking at SDG number whatever, and here's the impact in that particular sphere. I think so, and mm. and the SDGs provide a really um, a really interesting framework mm. by which people can um, agree agree that like these these are the goals. Um, I don't think they're perfect by any means, mm-hmm. um, but they are at least recognisable and um, and cover off broadly speaking uh, most of the bigger issues that we're facing as a as a global um, society. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something that that people can um, immediately know. What that means, if you're like talking about goal number four or, or whatever it is, I think it might be zero zero poverty, but yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah, and or, so I think it'd be it'd partnerships be, number seventeen. Yeah, I think exactly, like, which is the other catch-all of everything else, right? <laughs> is partnerships. That's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would I would love to see some some kind of um, sets of metrics under each yeah. of those goals by which you can measure, and I think the I think the UN has started. Doing mm. some work around I'm that. sure it will happen. I, I do a lot in impact investing, so investors want to see not just financial returns, but they want to know that the money that they're allowing the person to use, you know, has these other income outcomes, whether it's social or environmental or mm-hmm. cultural, whatever it is. But yeah. it's like, okay, how do we measure and how do we report on the fact that we helped 1,000 children, mm-hmm. you know, to eat lunch today? Yeah. You know, the, the, there's so much more impact than just saying, well, 1,000 children ate lunch because they therefore studied more. They therefore uh-huh. were able to yeah, have more opportunities and therefore, you know, mm-hmm. decades from now, mm-hmm. maybe we'll know what the amazing impact was. But it's very hard to mm. measure it in a, in a society that's used to, well, 
there's seventeen dollars and fifty two cents worth of impact, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. and, and how many and how many kids were fed, and that and that's that's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it really it, it brings up the point of of complexity again, and that's a big question for me, mm. and it's um and it's not a question that I'll be able to get an answer too quickly. Mm. And this is a question that will take me forward five twenty. 30 years into the future yeah. is is how we make room for for complexity and stories um, with, that that empowers people rather than making them shut off and go this is too hard I can't yeah. you know I can't deal with this well um, we'll have another podcast episode in three decades <laughs> when we've worked it all <laughs> yeah, out <laughs> yeah and I'll, I'll, yeah. I will have written my book by then um, nice. in, in a couple of years time I plan to do a bit of a world tour speaking with um with a lot of uh, well first and foremost people who work in the impact storytelling space mm-hmm. um, so interviewing them um, looking for case studies examples of communities where the power of narrative or storytelling has um, resulted in unexpected outcomes or um, really connected a group of people who you know we all thought probably wouldn't connect or mm. um, yeah just resulted in some sort of positive change that was um, beyond the status quo. Yeah, yeah, and no, I agree. And I think that's why I love this podcast because I interview such a variety of people and all the stories are so different. But then sometimes people start connecting across mm. the podcast even and I'll have a guest get in contact with another guest because they've heard that interview and and um, or we'll have a lunch and these people will be sitting next to each other, never met each other, and then they start an initiative. And I hear about it like six months later. Oh, by the way, we met at that lunch you organized. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really fun. I love mm-hmm. it. But again, it's that I don't know about it at all. You know, I don't know the impact of some of the things. But I think that's what you have to do, right? It's the yeah. hard work mm-hmm. of just grinding, getting on with things, yeah. and knowing that there will be some good that comes out mm-hmm. of it, even if and you don't see it. And there's a certain amount of faith that's needed there too, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, that's the last thing an economist wants to hear is have faith. <laughs> but um, but it's it, it's it's really um, taking that long-term view of mm-hmm. impact and mm-hmm. saying, you know, and, and EHF um, have been have been doing that as well in terms of looking at our fellows and within three years, um, you know, the decision is made whether they're going to be offered permanent residency or not after their visa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the challenge is is looking at what they've done so far and saying that's just the beginning. But a lot of the, the kind of systemic changes that so many of them are working on, you know, big things like shifting our global food system and, um, and climate change and, and changing education, these are long-term projects mm-hmm. that aren't going to see impacts um, or significant impacts at least for 20, 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. But we need to be building those sorts of solutions now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's that long-term perspective, you know, thinking of politics in the three-year cycle. It's not long enough, is it, to really no. have change? Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So um, if people are interested, what we'll do is put in the show notes some links to your website and sure. any other resources that we've talked about. Just send them to me and... That way people can explore further. Um, yeah, absolutely. But I've really enjoyed our conversation because I felt like we touched on so many different topics ranging from performance poetry to, you know, seclusion in nature and um, all the things. And just hearing about your journey as well has been really helpful mm. um, in terms of impact storytelling because that's ultimately what I'm trying to do with this podcast is have some impact through stories. So mm. it's been helpful to hear your thoughts as well. Wonderful. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me along. No it's problem. It's been a blast. Yeah. 
Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Alina. I know for me, I really loved hearing her perform some of her poetry and also just listening about impact storytelling and, and helping people tell their stories well. I hope there was lots of things that you could learn from as well. Until next time.